Today's episode of the Big 5D Podcast is brought to you by Duda, a professional website builder trusted by 18,000 agencies and SaaS platforms. Every 17 seconds, a new website is built on Duda. To learn more, visit them at duda.co. That's D-U-D-A dot C-O. Welcome to episode 31 of the Big 5D Podcast. I'm your host, Charles Laughlin, and I'm content director for Big Five Digital. We're an events and content firm specializing in B2B technology in Africa and the Middle East. Today's guest is Faraz Ahmad, CEO of Azam Pay, a payments platform that's part of Tanzania's Azam Group. Faraz is a great guest because he thinks deeply about the broader fintech ecosystem in Africa. So I always love to get some time with Faraz to talk about the state of fintech in Africa. And that's what the bulk of today's conversation is focused on. How does fintech and mobile money in particular need to evolve to serve the needs of African consumers and merchants? Our bonus discussion today is all about the future of cash in Africa. If you're a Big Five member or a subscriber to our SMME Tech Report newsletter, you can access the full podcast free of ads. For everyone else, the free version is pretty great too. Enjoy the show. Ross, welcome to the podcast. Good to have you back. Great. Thanks, Charles. Great to be here. For the audience, they may not be aware, you know, we've we've talked a few times, but we had you on our virtual event, our virtual fintech summit last year, and we talked about a number of interesting things. And I thought maybe we'd uh, kind of revisit a couple of those topics and maybe talk about a few other things. But before we get into that, your company, Azampe, launched something called Azampesa. Uh, and I just want to, that happened mm-hmm. since we talked last. I thought I'd give you a chance to Tell us a little bit about what that is and kind of update us with on how it's going. Yeah, so we launched on some Pesa back uh, publicly in March. Uh, and, you know, we've been growing uh, slowly but surely since then. Uh, basically, Azam Pesa is uh, similar to the other mobile wallets uh, that are kind of now very famous in, in East Africa, starting with M-Pesa in Kenya. And then, of course, you have uh, Tico Pesa, Hotel Money, MTN uh, across East, East Africa. So uh, I think the thing that's maybe a little bit different with what we're doing with Osmond Pesa is um, we're not SIM dependent. So we're not, uh, we don't have a parent mobile network operator. Um, we have uh, essentially uh, a mobile payment wallet. We have a license from the Bank of Tanzania to, to provide e-money services. Uh, and we do those in partnership with our partner networks as well as uh, on the smartphone apps. So, for example, uh, USSD menus would be available uh, through our partner networks. And then uh, if you have a data connection, you can always download the app and make a transaction. So uh, just to give a sense of what we're trying to do with Osmond Pizza uh, in terms of the, the overall approach, we're really focusing on the merchant sector. Um, we believe that there's a big opportunity to expand the number of payments that are being done digitally right now. Look at a place like Tanzania. Um, you have a very strong money sector, but still 90% of payments are done in cash. So we feel like there is an opportunity to dig into that 90%. We're not necessarily trying to recreate the wheel or cut and paste what's already out there, but uh, build some incentives and some structures and some, uh, uh, you know, some some products uh, through the mobile money space that target that uh, underserved part of the of the transaction community. So the fact that you're uh, independent of MNO is interesting, but why is that so? Why, is that important, or why is that important? 
I think it is important uh, because I think you know there are different incentives for different entities. So uh, I give you an example. One is um, one problem that we're trying to solve is around managing trust, particularly in the e-commerce space. So e-commerce is still very, very much in its infancy in in many parts of Africa, in Tanzania for sure. I would say it's probably less than 1%, maybe less than half a percent of transactions are e-commerce related. Uh, and the question is, why is that the case? Because e-commerce is widely, widely used across the world. Uh, in many parts of the world, even parts of Africa, I can imagine, um, have more e-commerce than e-commerce. It's grown yeah. a lot, yeah. Right. And and one of the one of the things that we kind of thought through was around how are the payments managed for e-commerce transactions, how are the digital payments managed for it, and how can they help facilitate those transactions? So if you look at uh, the, 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 the wallets that are in the space, uh, you know, the, typically digital payments are done either through wallets or banks. Um, the way that those transactions are managed are in structured in a way that you're not really addressing the key concerns of e-commerce, uh, either buyers or sellers. So what's the, what's the main concern between a buyer and a seller on e-commerce is primarily trust. You, in e-commerce, you're buying things from people you don't know. And since you don't have like these big box stores in, in Tanzania, you don't have branded uh, e-commerce uh, entities, right. you're simply buying off of either Instagram or WhatsApp or uh, that type of a, a, a selling um, a situation. So in that case, you need to bridge trust. How do you bridge trust if the payment service doesn't address that? So for example, if I make a payment for it, let's say you're, I'm buying your shirt, you send it to me, I make the payment online, uh, but the shirt that I get isn't the one that you put in the picture. How do I manage that? The payment is already gone. If I call the MNO wallet, they're going to say, well, your payment is successfully transacted. Uh, We've done our job. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, it's not part of their business. Mm-hmm. So we feel like disaggregating us from the MNO because the MNO is really in the connectivity business, right? It's in the it's in making connections, voice connections, SMS data, and now uh, connecting people via payments. But it's not necessarily in the commerce business. And so from our perspective as, as kind of, I guess you could say, fintech or as uh, a, a company that also has an e-commerce portion to it, we're in that business, right? So we have a B2B e-commerce platform. We understand the issues. And so uh, building a payments platform that addresses those issues more directly, I think, can open uh, value for consumers and businesses, but also... I think it, it increases the payment space. I think everybody will benefit, including uh, the wallets that aren't providing that service because you'll just have more people transacting and they'll be looking to um, you know uh, interact between the different wallets. There's interoperability in Tanzania, so you can move money one place to another. So we just think it'll be benefit, beneficial to everyone. Okay, so I want to dig into the whole how does trust practically manifest itself uh, using that shirt example, let's continue on that. Sure. Um, I bought, I get the shirt, it's the wrong size or it's the completely different. Right. What is the process then from there for me to rectify that uh, transaction? Yeah, so uh, a solution that we're working on for that is around managing the, the time that the money moves. So for example, let's say you buy a shirt uh, and you, let's say in the situation where the seller sends the shirt to you, but does not uh, receive payment until you receive the shirt, okay? If that's the case, then the shirt could come to you, 
and say you were happy with the shirt, but then you say, oh, you know what? I don't have any balance left in my wallet. I'll pay you tomorrow. But thanks for the shirt. I'll get to yeah, you when I can. That's good. Yeah. Yeah, that's good for the seller because now the, 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 the sale is consummated, right? As far as the guy's concerned, he's wearing the shirt now. And it's really not his problem whether the money is sent or not. It's now right. the seller's problem. So in that scenario, uh, you might be able to convince the individual to buy the shirt, but you'll not convince the seller to sell it in that method. And in the opposite, if the buyer pays up front, and like as we discussed, the, the shirt is torn, then how are they going to get their money back? The seller, it's not really his problem. And then the, 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 the mobile wallet is not really interested in getting involved. So we think that by building a uh, kind of a, a payment management system where, say, for example, you buy the sh- I buy the shirt from you and the money is deducted from my account. Okay, So I don't have that access to those funds right now. It's with the third party, meaning the mobile wallet or the payment service provider. But it is released when the shirt is, let's say the shirt is delivered. Let's say it's triggered by delivery. Mm-hmm. So there's a third party or a logistics company that comes in and delivers that shirt. And it's verified that that shirt is delivered. Uh, and the customer has uh, not complained that there's a problem with the product. Money can move, right? Uh, and no one should have an issue with it because the customer is happy. Uh, there's proof of delivery. Could be a picture. Could be some type of confirmation. And um, the seller is happy because now they receive the money. So I feel like that type of a uh, of a system that kind of takes into account all the various factors that could go wrong and then addresses the concerns of each individual at each step is really what uh, could build trust between unknown parties uh, on that type of transaction. Okay. Okay. That's great. Um, I want to pan back a little, sort of the broader mobile money space. You've had some some things to say about, you know, mobile money. It's great and all that, but in a way it's uh, become such a lucrative business that it has kind of stopped innovating. That was a year ago when you said that and you wrote a piece about it maybe more than a year ago. Uh, mm-hmm. And I just want to get sort of your an update on sort of your view of the current state of play in mobile money in Africa. How has it progressed? So I- yeah, it's a good question. I think things are definitely changing. Uh, I think you have some different uh, business models that are emerging. So one uh, that we've seen that has had gotten a lot of traction in Senegal, uh, Wave, the company Wave has come up with a kind of a, I think their business model was around uh, free cash out and uh, 1% or something like that uh, on, on the money movement. And of course, it, it it may work in certain locations, it may not work in other locations, but at least there is some innovation going on. Um, I, I do think that the legacy players are also very much attempting to innovate. So I've seen uh, some new products come out uh, around agriculture, around financing, around credit, uh, and all these types of things, trying to extend uh, different types of services to consumers. Uh, so that's also always encouraging. Whenever consumers benefit, that's good. Um, but at the same time, I still think there are uh, there's ways to go, uh, and there's a lot of space to innovate in the mobile money in the mobile money space. And 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 I come back to this question of: Are we moving money, or are we facilitating commerce? Because if we're focused on moving money, and that's really the primary case, right? Maybe transfer. Uh, it's one type of business. If we're facilitating commerce, it's a different mindset. And so I think it's really great to see new players come in and 
address different uh, sides of that of that coin. So you mentioned Wave. Uh, I think they're one of the uh, handful of un relatively new unicorns, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, not that, though, I had to be honest, that whole unicorn thing kind of kind of silly in my view. But um, but anyway, right. <laughs> that aside, um, do you think that you know uh, new entrants like that are pressuring the legacy players? Do you think any of the movement you're seeing among legacy players is a response to new entrants in the market, or is it just the evolution of of the market? Yeah, I, absolutely. I think, I mean, even our own experience, you know, we launched in March and I saw a ton of, of uh, announcements from the legacy players in the mobile money space over the course of a few weeks after we launched. So for sure, they're, it's not that they're not paying attention. I, I absolutely think that they are paying attention and they are trying to uh, either improve their services or try and figure out how they're going to uh, address those challenges. So I, I think it is driving that uh, to some extent. At the same time, you know, um, the, the, the market is dynamic and also, you know, uh, there are certain areas of activity that myself as Asam Pesta can enter into that, you know, uh, the legacy players wouldn't have any interest in. So one would be um, logistics is a good example. Okay. Mm -hmm. So that example we made about the shirt being delivered. You know, I don't see any uh, in any future where you would have uh, a large mobile network operator go into warehousing and logistics on e-commerce. I don't see that happening because it's not really their core function. I can't imagine, uh, you know, the boards up in those European cities would approve of that. So that's an area where I think uh, the new players can come in and address and look and see how do you create value for consumers and then... And then and build products around that that uh, integrate payments in a way that that creates uh, a new user experience, a new type of opportunity. It, it makes certain types of businesses viable that might otherwise not be viable. Right. So I want to move on to a couple of different topics. Um, we wrote a piece for our newsletter recently, and you contributed a comment to it about uh, you know how is the sort of global freeze in VC, which you know, we're, we're still seeing companies get funded, obviously, but there's there has been a change. You know, it's fair to say since earlier in the year, uh, mm -hmm. and and the general consensus has been that Africa is different. Uh, that you know that, that because it's so underfunded, you know, compared to other parts of the world, et cetera, et cetera. That you know the funding should keep coming, and there's seems to be evidence of that because the, the funding has been uh, still pretty robust this year. Though I'm, I'm not, I guess depending on where you look, there might be some signals of it slowing down. But then I have talked to others who say that you know certainly valuations have changed, and there's there's been a change in, in how uh, investing has been approached here. Um, I just want to get your your sort of broader take on what you think the uh, sort of the fallout will be from what's been happening globally in Africa. Yeah, I, I think there there will be a fallout to some extent. I mean, I don't think it'll be as pronounced as you might find in other parts of the world, like you said, because funding has not necessarily been that in such large volumes. But I do think there will be. And, and in particular, I do think there will be some uh, additional scrutiny on the business model. And that's what I'm seeing a little bit of. For example, um, you could talk about gross merchandise value a lot in Sub-Saharan Africa last year. And raise a lot of money and now i think that story is less 
compelling to an investor than it was last year. And I think that's not necessarily a bad thing because um, in Africa in particular, if you drive growth on gross merchandise value that doesn't have a gross margin associated with it or a very thin or almost non-existent gross margin, you will drive revenue, but you're not going to create a business that will work because uh, in Africa, switching costs are very, very low. It's hard to create a business in Africa where there's a high switching cost because consumers simply can just do without it. Switching costs, not that I'm replacing it with one thing or the other, it's that they'll let it go. They'll just abandon it. Right. One example competition is nothing. Uh, that's uh, always a problem, right? Yeah. Yeah. When you're competing with nothing, it's hard to win. Regardless yeah. of uh, how you're, you know, you can't raise your price that much. So anyways, the example I would, I would um, reference is, I remember there was a conversation I had around solar home systems in Africa, in Tanzania, East Africa region, where there was a lot of sales happening just like three, four years ago where, uh, you know, you had donor funding, they were driving adoption, a lot of people were buying and putting on their roofs. And then, uh, you know, they, the, some of these companies grew so fast, they couldn't service those uh, those solar panels, and these are done, these are all sold based on this incremental sale. So you pay a little bit, pay as you go solar. Uh, but the problem with pay as you go solar is there's no ownership of the asset on the part of the consumer. So if it stops working or you don't want to pay, you just abandon it. And so you had a lot of abandoned uh, solar home systems uh, that um, ended up not. Uh, you know, there was a lot of sales. Gross merchandise value was very high, but when you look at it a year down the road. Um, the, the business was not there. So I think that's where um, the rubber will hit the road on the investments. I think, I think there's still huge opportunities in Africa and I can imagine um, there's still VCs that are, that are looking at it very closely, but focusing on making sure uh, that you're, you're not building uh, unit economics that are not in a long-term sustainable way, uh, I think is very important at this point. Right. Yeah, that solar idea. And once they stop paying, the, the, the still the capital cost <laughs> of all that uh, right. solar equipment that has to be uh, accounted for. So, yeah, yeah, that's interesting. The other thing that uh, sort of been interesting in watching Africa is trying to kind of watching the evolution of sort of this notion of um, foreign investment versus sort of homegrown investment, I guess, for lack of a better term. Uh, mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, and you kind of said before how there's real benefits to having more homegrown investment because it's closer to the real problems that are being solved. Um, and do you think, are you seeing much progress in sort of moving towards a more African-based investment community? And do you think the sort of the global slowdown is going to either accelerate or decelerate that? Yeah, I do. I do think so. I, I know that there was a fund. I can't remember the name. I think I know what you're referring to, and I'm, I can't think of the name either. Yeah, but go ahead. Kenya. Uh, there was a fund that was launched in Kenya recently uh, mm -hmm. that was made of local founders. I know that uh, there's a quote-unquote paystack mafia that's developing in Nigeria. So right. there was a paystack exit, I think it was about two years ago, uh, for about $200 million or something like that. And so you have a bunch of those founders, I guess, early employees that are working together to fund companies. So I, I think that's certainly happening. I think it's going to be very, uh, it's going to be based on the country. So I know in Kenya, in Nigeria, in South Africa, you get a lot of investment. Uh, whereas some of these more satellite countries, right, like even a place like Tanzania or 
uh, Uganda or maybe, well, Uganda may be a little bit more advanced, um, let's say parts of, you know, Central Africa, Zimbabwe, Zambia, you might not get that, right? Because you're not having these types of exits and, you know, that's not happening. So uh, I, I do think that that progress is being made and it'll be interesting to see what kind of companies come out. I know there was, uh, there was a food delivery app in Kenya that folded a couple months ago. Kune Food. Is that yes. Yeah, I've written yeah. extensively lot, about that one, yeah. Right, right. And a lot of people were upset because the founder was, uh, you know, not African and was able right. to raise so much money so quickly and, you know, people were investigating. I mean, some of the stuff I saw in there, you know, almost every startup goes through many of those things. It's hard to uh, be perfect on anything. But at the same time, um, you know, I can understand the frustration of local founders as well who might have great ideas and struggle to to get them funded. So yeah, it would be I, great to yeah, I saw an interesting parallel, and maybe it's a stretch, but when when the whole um, Andreessen Horowitz, um, Adam Newman, this is going back to the right. Adam Newman funding, but I, right. I sort of some of the reaction on Twitter felt similar to the reaction to Kune Foods in the sense that you know right. <laughs> what the hell, <laughs> yeah. I've got this business that's making money, I can't get a phone call, and then this guy fails his way to the top. So I mean, there's there's maybe right. that sense about some of this. You know, it's maybe a bit of a yeah. Story. I fully agree with that. I mean, I, I I get just as annoyed about the Adam Newman type thing as well. I mean, part of it is also I can it's understandable because if you look at what what he did, really, it's really branding, right? I mean, I think what they're seeing is they see a kind of quasi celebrity business guy, right? And what they're trying to do is build a company around that brand, and so they throw money at it, and that kind of becomes a self fulfilling prophecy, like. Like the other one that I, it kind of reminded me of was uh, Clubhouse. Remember Clubhouse? Oh, yeah. Kind of blew oh, yeah, yeah. Just like it had a billion dollar valuation at one point, didn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah it was insane. And mm -hmm. for six months, nobody could do anything but talk about Clubhouse. And now I haven't opened Clubhouse in like eight months. Does right? it even exist? Part of, yeah. You know, part of the reason I remember that it blew up is because early on, they were able to get Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg to host rooms. Right. And when that happened, like just everybody piled on. And so, it, it, like, the tech itself, actually, the tech is not bad, because if you look at Twitter Spaces, it was actually a lot better than Twitter Spaces. Twitter mm -hmm. Spaces was so glitchy. But at the same time, the tech was not, like, you're not definitely not launching rockets to the moon or, or to Mars with that tech. It's just, yeah. you know, it's a room with a bunch of people. So, um, so what it came down to was, you know, who was backing it, what venture fund was backing it, what kind of tech crunch articles are you getting, and all that stuff, and it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. So I think there's a part of that that goes on in Africa. I think there's, you know, there's a tech press. Uh, some of it's kind of like, you know, it goes for the lowest hanging fruit. And if you know how to, you know, you know how to be the lowest hanging fruit, then you're going to get the attention. And then it'll be like, you know, somebody will pay attention to you and give you some money. So yeah. I, I don't know. My whole take on this is a little different. I, I'm actually not in the VC game. Um, the company that I'm building uh, is with the Azam Group. It's almost entirely funded by the Agum Group, and so it's it's a local company. You know, everything is coming from the, the local company, and I'm working with them now. There's benefits and advantages to that. Obviously, there's some constraints with that, uh, but the benefit is, you know, I don't have to deal with uh, that whole VC game, which I think also uh, perverts some of the incentives of the startup itself. So, like what I was talking about, gross gross merchandise value. I can imagine there's probably a guy sitting in a VC fund that's like, I want to see numbers, right? Show me numbers. And then if you need to inflate them, there's ways to do that. Uh, in, in Africa, you could, anything can happen 
if you find some creative people to help you do it. But whether it's real and either foam on the sea or if it's real, it's sometimes hard to tell, uh, especially if you're not on the ground. Yeah. And I think, it, you know, it's hard to build a I mean, if you want to build a business that just, you know, solves a problem in Kenya and just stays on that um, or pick a country, it, it's hard to raise money right. because they all want you to move you know, the five minutes after you've got traction in Kenya. They want you to be in six other markets. Yeah. Exactly. And I think this is a little bit misguided. I mean, I can mm -hmm. understand on certain applications like on, say, you know, Pay payments, but even payments is extremely local. I mean, yeah. if you look at payments in even Rwanda versus Tanzania, there are differences. So it's not like a one-size-fits-all solution. But I would say in particular, when you start getting into the, you know, you have the digits business, the the ones where everything is on the computer, and then you have the Adams business where you actually have to move things around. Once you get to the Adams business, you, you to take a, a pan-African strategy from the start, I think it's a total disaster waiting to happen. Yeah. I think that's yeah, yeah. In fairness, I had this conversation with a VC last, like a week ago, but, and his point was on the digit side, you should be expanding into new markets yeah. fairly aggressively. Um, yeah. His point was not so much around the atoms. Uh, so right. Yeah. But you right. see it with the atoms businesses sense. too, you know, like the, uh, yeah. you know, marketplaces that, you know, require a presence on the ground, you know, where you have to, um, you know, you, you know, it depends, but uh, but a lot. Not all of these businesses are purely uh, Adam. Some of them involve, yeah, you know, inventory and and you know, local yeah. presence and such. Uh, it feels well, like you know, you, everyone's going into Nigeria with yet another whatever it is. You know, yeah. Give you a very good example of where this gets screwed up is rideshare. Okay. Yes. Uh, right. Rideshare. So, so it's a good example, Tanzania, right? Uber exited rideshare in Tanzania because they ran into some regulatory issue. Actually, I heard some of the story around this, which is, uh, you know, I won't go into the details of that. But the point for me, for a company like Uber, so Uber is like, it's an insane global brand, if you think about it. Like, there's a guy at the gate of the office here in uh, Dar es Salaam. He, uh, he knows Uber, like he knows the brand Uber. He doesn't call it a taxi, he calls it an Uber, okay? So even that guy knows the brand, but Uber is exited, right? It's done this incredible job of marketing the concept of rideshare across the entire world. Uh, it's probably one of the most recognized global brands for, for mobility, but they can't make money in these markets in particular because they don't understand the dynamics of payments. They don't understand the dynamics of the drivers and how what their expectations are. Uh, how they manage their supplies, like fuel and maintenance and things like that. So for me, Rideshare is a, like Uber is a global brand uh, building a business in a, in a building a local business, right? right? I really feel like Rideshare is a local, local business. And it's also not a great uh, pure play business, right? If you have Rideshare Plus, I can imagine it creating some additional values, but Rideshare by itself, um, you know, like I said, switching costs are practically nothing. Yeah. I can ride an Uber, I can ride the local one, right? I don't care which one. Who's going to pay me faster? Who's going to, you know, who am I going to make money with? Where am I going to get the rides from? Who's going to understand my needs? And it's very hard for someone outside of uh, Tanzania to come in and understand exactly what those concerns are right. in a way that, that drives adoption. Well, it's one reason why most rideshare apps want to be super apps or some sort of version of that. Right. The Big 5D Podcast is a production of Big 5 Digital. 
The podcast is written, produced, and hosted by me, Charles Laughlin. Our aim is to bring you great conversations with technology leaders in Africa and the Middle East. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you become a Big Five Digital member or a paid subscriber to the Africa SMME Tech Report on Substack, you'll have access to the full-length ad-free version of this podcast. Visit big5digital.org to learn more. And if you have a guest recommendation for us, please drop us a line at big5dtv at gmail.com. That's big5dtv at gmail.com. And tell us about them. And please mark your calendar for the Big Five Summit, 1416 March in Cape Town. This is our flagship annual event, and please plan on joining us. Thank you.